Psalm chapter 95. Recently, I heard a story about uh, an American couple hiking in Great Britain, and they were hiking and uh, came upon this British man and woman on the trail, and they started a conversation with them. And as they started the conversation with this uh, older British man and woman, they, they said, hey, have you ever interacted with British royalty? And the gentleman said, yeah, yeah, every once in a while, yeah, I get to, to interact with, with British royalty. What they didn't know is the woman there was Queen Elizabeth <laughs> on the trail. And so what they do, the American couple is in a very American way, they take their camera out, hand it to Queen Elizabeth because they want a picture with this guy who has often interacted with royalty. They don't respond too well for the royal, uh, toward the royalty right in front of them. Friends, today we're going to be studying Psalm 95. It talks about royalty or the enthronement. It's called an enthronement psalm. And we don't want to just hand the camera to God and be like, take a picture of us. He's king. How are we going to respond to the king? Psalm 95, like a herald coming in saying, rise, for the king enters, asks us, encourages us to respond rightly to the king. This is Psalm 95, one of the royal psalms. O come, let us sing to the Lord Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa. In the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Today's passage, Psalm 95, gives us both encouragement to praise the king and warning for those who defy the king. Like a herald calling, like I said, as we enter the room, how are we going to respond? It says this, respond correctly to your king. That can be a summary of Psalm 95. Respond correctly to your king. And here's how we respond. Point one, praising the Creator King. We are called to praise the Creator King. Verses 1 and 2 say, let us, let us, let us, let us. Four different times, we are to respond a certain way to the King. The first way, let us sing. God's people, in response to the King, are to sing. Singing is a gift from God to express gratefulness and joy to the King. It says, make a joyful noise. And it's not just random noises. 
It's joyful noise. The emphasis here is on the joyful, celebratory. Picture a parade where there is a victory being celebrated. He is our king. And what are we celebrating about the king? It says he is the rock of our salvation. The original word there is speaking of a high rock. It's a, it's a rock that's secure and difficult for enemies to access. It's a refuge. It's safety is implied. He's the rock of our salvation. Later in this psalm, Meribah will be spoken of, which is right after Israel is rescued from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. The Exodus is often called the good news of the Old Testament. God is gracious and merciful. He delivers his people out of slavery. He delivers them from their enemies. He is the rock of salvation. So David, or we think he might be the one who wrote this, the rock of salvation has in mind the Exodus story. They come out on dry land. They're delivered from their enemies in a way that nobody saw coming. God orchestrated it. He's the deliverer. He's the rock of salvation. Verse 2 then says, let us come into his presence. We are welcomed by the king. It could be translated, come before his face. And we must note, you don't enter the king's presence without first being summoned. If you read through the book of Esther, there's a whole group of people praying and fasting for Esther. Because if you come into the, the king's presence without being summoned, you get executed. They're praying she doesn't get executed. It's a really big deal. So in Psalm 95, verse 2, it says, let us come into his presence. That's a big deal. But you get no hint of hesitation. It's a coming into his presence with thanksgiving. You're summoned. You're welcomed with grateful hearts. For the Passover lamb was provided. The waters had parted. The enemy was defeated. The rock of our salvation is to be praised. Grateful hearts. Verse 3 then says, For the Lord Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. Yahweh is God. He is the only one worthy of all praise. There is no other God. There is no other rock of salvation. There is no other one worthy of praise. So the Exodus is not owed to luck or fate or good fortune, or someone knocking on wood hard enough. Friends, those are unbiblical concepts. Is that part of your vocabulary? Or Like, that's unbiblical. I was listening to a Christian radio station the other day, and the guy, like, talked about God, and he was like, man, that guy was so lucky. And I was like, that's godless. We don't believe in fate or luck or knock on wood. Like, that's stupid. That is not the God of the Bible. God is God. God is king. And how do we know he's in control? He is the creator king. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. Yahweh fashioned the depths and the heights. There's a series on Disney that Will Smith hosts called Welcome to Earth. They go to the depths of the earth where there's complete silence. Like they have these monitors and there's like silence and other places where there's complete darkness. They go down deep in this like weird little something controlled deal that goes down deep and, and they, it is dark. It's just pitch black. And Will Smith, who talks a lot, if, I, if you've ever heard him interviewed or anything, he's a, he's a talker. 
oftentimes he's speechless in the midst of creation, in awe. Because when we're in the midst and seeing the vastness of God, we see the smallness of man. But we're not just to see the smallness of man. We're supposed to turn our eyes to the vastness of God. It is all in his hands. Verse 5, the sea is his. Like, don't move too too fast through that. The sea is his. If you've ever flown anywhere, like to Asia, you're from California, you're flying. I remember going from California to, to South Korea on a flight, and it takes forever and it just, it just feels like, how many movies do I have to watch for this to finally be over? The whole thing's ocean. The sea is his. It's massive. When we adopted our four new kids, uh, one of the youngest ones would walk around the house because he wanted to know what, who owned each thing. So he would go to the refrigerator, Mamas? 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 Over the couch, Sarah's? So he would, like... It was really cute for the first few days. And it's like, dude, like, it's all God's. It's God, every, God all every, everything in our house is God's. Because he just kept doing that over and over. But what does this text say? Verse 5, the sea is his. It's all God's. How do we know the sea is his? Verse 5 continues, for he made it. God creatively makes the clear waters of the Caribbean, the dark blues of the Arctic, the grays and the browns of all the seas. They are literally his water colors. Verse 5 continues, and his hands form the dry land. He fashions the sea. He fashions the dry land. For you all who are artists out there, can you imagine the creative design that God just magnificently works? He's an artist. The trees, the shrubs, the textures, the hues. In Job 38 and 39, God shows uh, just himself as creator of the foundations of the earth, the seas, the seasons, the weather, snow, rain, drought, thunder, lightning, clouds, as well as stars and constellations, as well as animals, lions, ravens, goats, donkeys, wild oxen, ostriches, and horses. It just keeps going. And remember, Job had just accused God. But after Job sees the wonder of the creator king, here's what he says, Job 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer? I lay my hand on my mouth. We see here, and we'll continue to see in Psalm 95, that the appropriate response to the creator king is humility. And that humility makes us cover our mouth when we're accusing God. But that quickly changes to opening our mouth to praising God. We cover our mouth when we're where we are accusing God and we open our mouth to praise God. So friends, is it your regular habit to praise God your creator? Do you look at creation with wonder and then transition that to praising God? Do you pause at a sunset or a sunrise to worship God? The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you stop long enough to see it, to see the bird, the flower, 
to walk in creation? Or do you just stare at your phone or computer or television instead of contemplating creation? Do you not look at the beach and the swamp and the pine tree and the flower and the fish? Oh, those are all grand pointers to the Creator King. Friends, let's get outside and look at creation. If you read people of the past that are Christians for thousands of years, being outside was a part of the worship. That was normal routine for Christians. Is it your regular, regular habit to praise God, your Creator? But knowing God and praising God as Creator is just a small portion of knowing Him. The idea of the Creator King may give you the feel that He's, he's big and vast and distant, but the psalmist will quickly correct that. He's not just distant. We praise, point number two, the shepherd king. We praise the shepherd king. So we praise the creator king, but he's also a shepherd king. Look at verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So Verse 1 said, O come, let us sing. Now we're summoned, O come, let us bow down. When we rejoice in God as creator, we will quickly humbly bow to him. It says we bow to our maker. So this isn't just the maker of the mountains and the seas. This isn't just the maker of the heights and the depths. It says our maker this is the maker of us. You have been sculpted and knit together in your mother's womb. He fashioned you. He made you in his image. Verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Friend, that is, that is personal language. That is covenant language. He is our God, and we are his people. And the emphasis of this covenant language is on that shepherd-sheep imagery. Just as it is a good and wise practice to consider that the king is creator, it is a good and wise practice, believers, to consider that the king is our shepherd. This idea of the Lord is my shepherd is throughout the Old Testament. When Jacob blesses Joseph in Genesis 48, 15, he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. He's been my shepherd all my life long. You want to see a guy who needs to be shepherded? That was Jacob. We'll talk about him more in a few weeks. All my life long, my shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel's rebuking the leaders, the shepherds of Israel who are supposed to, to care for the people. And he says this, God says this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. He's a shepherd king. The New Testament gives even more clarity on that. The shepherd, the shepherding of God comes to us. The shepherd king 
is incarnate. He comes. He's the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And if you just look and read John chapter 10, it just expounds on the good shepherd. Friends, we must know the good shepherd. Here's just uh, some bullet points on, on the good shepherd from John chapter 10. The good shepherd calls his sheep. The good shepherd knows the sheep by name. The good shepherd's voice is known by the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd does not lose any of his sheep. The good shepherd unifies his sheep, and the good shepherd gives abundant life to his sheep. Friends, do you know the good shepherd? Do you hear about the shepherd king, and you respond with joy and you respond with humble adoration, or as Psalm 95 says, you sing and you bow before him. Christopher Ash says this, we bow because he has shaped us to belong to him in that personal relationship of covenant. Like he's brought us in, like the shepherd carrying, caring for the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. Friends, this is personal, intimate, God knowing you and God caring for you. So here's my next question. How has God shepherded you recently? How has God shepherded you recently? Has he encouraged you in the midst of discouragement? Has he provided for you when you didn't see a way forward? Has he put you in a situation where you can only lean on him because other provisions are gone? Has he protected you or sustained you? Has he called you and spoken to you through his word and through times of prayer? Has he comforted you in his presence? Has he convicted you of wandering from his pasture? Has he held you and comforted you? Has he bound your wounds? Has he broken your legs to stop you from wandering? Has the shepherd used the rod and the staff to guard you and guide you? Has the shepherd carried you? Has the shepherd called you by name? Has the shepherd unified you with other sheep? Friends, we must have our eyes on the shepherding heart of our king. A few days ago, Krista and I were walking through some parental discouragements. Many of you know there's been lots of changes in our family. And my wife just mentioned two texts that ladies sent just some of them not even in town that like just prayed for us and the shepherd king put her or our family on their heart and just like, hey, praying for you today. You had that happen before where like, wow, I didn't expect a text or a call from that person, but God laid them, uh, laid you on their heart. And then later that morning, I got a call from a gentleman that's a friend and he's just like, how are you guys doing? And it was just like, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So just explaining and having a listening ear, but what he did in shepherding my heart and God used him to point out evidences of grace that I hadn't seen. Oh, friends, the shepherding care of God and pointing out grace in our lives that we don't see. That's the shepherding care of our God. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
And with all the praise and adoration and understand the king as both creator king and shepherd king, wouldn't you think all would go well? It's just like, yeah, but that's not where the text goes. Not with humanity. <laughs> because of sin, we don't naturally want God as our king. Like that American couple, we, we hand the camera to God and like, hey, focus on us. Take a picture of us. We want to be in charge. And friends, our text says that attitude is a hard heart. Point number three, warning against a hard heart. Look at the second part of verse 7 in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, in order to understand this passage about what a hard heart looks like, we have to understand Meribah and Masa. Like, if you don't understand Meribah and Masa, you're like, there's something there, but it's not quite clicking. I don't fully understand. Well, let me explain Meribah and let me explain Masa. Meribah takes place, it's a, it's a place, it's an event in Exodus chapter 17, where the people of God have just come out of the Red Sea. So Exodus 14, the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they are singing songs and there's provision of water for them. Exodus 16, they get manna. This is Exodus 17, okay? That's like what happens. In Exodus 17 of Meribah, they've just been rescued from slavery. They have all those provisions I just explained, but they start complaining. Not a little bit of complaining, like complaining where Moses is afraid he's going to get stoned to death. The people start thinking Egypt maybe wasn't so bad. It wasn't that bad. They scornfully wonder if God brought them out into the desert to kill them. Meribah in Psalm 95 speaks of the people who have a hard heart. The word Meribah means strife. And it's not just strife with Moses. It is strife with God that's going on. Is being in the very moments, the early moments of God's salvation where slavery had just ended days before and now complaining. So in Exodus 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock and water would flow out of it. God provides water for the grumbling people. That is Meribah. That is a hard-heartedness. The second incident is Masa in Numbers chapter 20, where the people test God. That's what Masa means, is testing. Masa is very similar to Meribah, but happens years later. At this point, the Israelites had not only experienced freedom from slavery, but they've experienced the presence of God through the pillar of fire at night that would keep them warm and cloud to shade them in the desert during the hot day. They experienced daily food of manna. They had the good words of the Ten Commandments. They had experienced God's sustaining of their clothing. They had provisions from Egypt, and they had regular meetings of their leaders in the tent of meeting with God. And again, Masa is a complaint about a lack of water. 
Moses and Aaron meet with Yahweh in the tent of meeting. And this time God tells Moses not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock and tell the water to flow. It's a very similar Meribah Masa thing going, just years difference in time. Moses strikes the rock twice, and water flows, but this is the moment that Moses gets told, you didn't do things God's way. You don't do the work of the Spirit and the power of the flesh. Moses is angry with the grumbling people, but his anger gets him permanent suspension from the promised land. He will not enter God's rest of the promised land, and the hard-hearted grumbling people will not enter God's rest in the promised land. And, and just a side note, those who are in any kind of leadership, parents, like you don't fight sin with sin. Like was Moses angry? Yes. Do we understand why he was angry? Yeah. Do you have some sympathy? Has he done it this way before where he struck the rock? Yes. Did he listen to God? No. Friends, we don't fight sin with sin. We honor and obey the king. And Psalm 95 tells us to praise our creator, king, bow to the shepherd king, but it also warns us not to ignore the word and work and ways of the king. Our king is not to be trifled with or distrusted. Derek Kinder says it this way, Meribah and Masa are two place names which sum up the sour, skeptical spirit of Israel. They're places, but the names mean strife and testing. And they sum up the sour, skeptical spirit of Israel's church. We've got to consider that. Sour and skeptical. Do either of these characterize us, characterize you or me, sour toward God or skeptical of God? Are we sitting back with our arms crossed, accusing God, grumbling to God, testing God, striving with God? Kidner notes that the main issue of this warning is the people's refusal to take God at his word. It's unbelief. James Hamilton says this, the Israelites were not contemplating the ways their God had done the impossible for them and prying them loose from Pharaoh's clutches or making the Red Sea a temporary highway for their exclusive use and giving them manna from heaven to eat. Rather than thinking on all that God had done for them, they thought only on what they did not have, water. And if you think, well, yeah, you need water, well, Two chapters before Meribah, like he provided water. Like it's not like it hadn't happened. This is unbelief. This is forgetting God's past history of faithfulness and only being aware of what we don't have. This is theological amnesia, refusing to take God at his word. What does Psalm 95 call this? Hardness of heart testing God, provoking the king. What should they have done? They should have prayed. They should have asked God to provide. He'd already provided water, manna, clothing, provision, pillar of fire, clouds. He's the deliverer, the provider, and yet they turn skeptical. God doesn't care, does he? They start grumbling. 
Let us be warned, friends, of this passage. Let us not forget where we came from. Let us not forget that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were following Satan. We were children of wrath. Let us not forget God's past faithfulness. While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for your complaining and your pride, and your lust, and your greed, and your envy, and your hatred, and your unbelief. Christ died for our rebellion, and our skepticism, and our treason of the king. It's been paid for on the cross, and we don't have to live in the grumbling. Now, it's important, friends, to study the Old Testament and see if texts in the Old Testament are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. And this enthronement psalm has an entire section of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 expositing or teaching Psalm 95. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 basically quotes Psalm 95, 7 through 11, specifically this part. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. And, and we've got to get this application. The, the author of Hebrews takes this text of Psalm 95 and applies it. And here's how he applies it to his audience. And here's how we need to apply it. Get this. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Here's how we don't have a hard heart, friends. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews sees the hardening of the Israelites and warns hundreds of years later a hardening of the people he's writing to. It's still a temptation to be hardened against God. And and so we just need to know, when is this warning needed? Here's the answer, today. That's what the text says, today. Here's the historical application. It was the today in Exodus and Numbers 3,500 years ago, the today. It was the today of Psalm 95 3,000 years ago. It was the today of the author of Hebrews 2,000 years ago. Derek Kidner says this, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13 expounds Psalm 95, and it forbids us to confine its thrust to Israel. The today of which it speaks is this very moment. The you is none other than ourselves. The today is a warning, friends, October 16th. 2022, as we sit in this room, today, as you hear the voice of your king, do not harden your hearts. And you may think, well, that's just something for for other people. That's just those hardened-hearted people out there. No, the text in Hebrews 3 says, brothers, he's addressing the church. Brothers, do not harden your hearts and fall away from God. Because you think you know him. You think you have him. We know our God saves. But there are many people walking around that aren't saved that are claiming the saved card. And if you harden your heart and you walk away, you never knew him in the first place. But what's the remedy? What's the remedy for our hard heart? Hebrews 3 says, but exhort one another every day. 
Friends, when was the last time you were exhorted? When was the last time you wanted to be exhorted? Like, because you knew you needed it. You knew your heart needed it. I remember being 19, 20 years old. I was a very young believer. And I remember writing Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 on a card and putting it on my dashboard. I wanted to memorize it, but I needed to know this. I was very aware of my hardness of heart. I was very aware that my heart was, was tempted with pride, with lust, with envy. My heart had the deceptiveness of sin, but I needed this reminder. Today, I need the exhortation of other believers. Today, I need help. Today, if I don't repent of upstream sin, it will flow down and my heart will grow harder. And I will be doing things that right now I don't think I would ever do. And you're the same way. Today, if we harden our heart, friends, we're going to go on paths of, of unrepentance and unbelief. And the king is calling us today, if you hear his voice, run from the lust, run from the pride, run from the materialism today. Don't wait. And it's a, an appeal for community this is an appeal for other believers to be in your life and feel comfortable exhorting you where you ask for it, where you want it, where you invite it. Friends, we need the body of Christ to grow in Christ. That's what Scripture says, to encourage us, to exhort us, to shepherd us. This is part of the shepherding of King Jesus. You need other believers in your life that know you and are willing to speak truth to you. And Psalm 95 is a gracious warning, as is Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Let us not have hard hearts and then not enter the rest of our king. For the Israelites, what this is talking about in Psalm 95 is the rest of the promised land. But if we have hard hearts and prove to be unbelievers, we will not enter that eternal rest. Let us have soft hearts today. And friends, let us remember what kept these people out of the promised land. What was the sin? It wasn't adultery. It wasn't murder. It wasn't sex trafficking. It wasn't these big, obvious sins that, oh man, I'm not going to do that. It was grumbling. It was grumbling. How is a hard heart manifested? Grumbling. Complaining about people, about circumstances, about things in our life. Oh, Lord, forgive us for complaining. I don't know a single person in here that's like, nope, never. Complain, grumble? Mm-mm. It's not me. No. Guilty. Guilty. I am guilty of this. Let us be a people who strive to enter the rest by fleeing the grumbling and complaining. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, which is the opposite of grumbling. Christopher, you can come on up. Psalm 95 exhorts us to respond to the king correctly. And it basically says that there are two responses to the king. You will worship the king or you will grumble against the king. You will have a soft heart or you will have a hard heart. Friends, which are you? If you are soft-hearted, the text shows us that you're aware of the creator king. You sing to him. You're grateful. You bow to him. You're aware of your sin, but you're more aware of the shepherding care of the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. 
If you have a soft heart, this text encourages you. Praise him. Continue to praise him. Bow to him. Continue to bow to him. But if you're like me, you're like, it's softish. I have a lot of softness, but there's parts that feel hard. Here's the litmus test, some of which may shine light on our hearts if we actually are struggling with hardness more than we realize. Are you forgetting God's past faithfulness? Oh, friends, if, if we're forgetting God's past faithfulness, that's hardness of heart. Are we accusing God? That's hardness of heart. Are we grumbling? That's hardness of heart. Are we sour or skeptical of God? We're, that's hardness of heart. Are we finding joy in God's word and prayer? A relationship with the king? If not, there's hardness of heart. Are we feeling no need to be unified to other brothers and sisters in Christ? If we see no need for unity, we just hold people at a distance, that's hardness of heart. Are we self-focused rather than God-focused? Friends, that's hardness of heart. And the text says, if you hear his voice today, today, do not harden your heart. Friends, we are called to repent. And God offers forgiveness through the cross again to you. And friends, the text of Hebrews 3 and 4 continues. The, the, it's talking through Psalm 95, and here's what it continues with. Friends, this is good news for those of us who struggle with hard-heartedness. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, tempted toward grumbling, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, the throne of grace. He's the king. This is his throne. Let us draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, your king is summoning you and your heart to draw near that throne. Why do you need grace? Because of your sin and hardness of heart. Why do you need mercy? Because of your sin and hardness of heart. The good news is we have a place to go. We have a king on the throne. We have a mediator. We have the great high priest who takes all the complaining, all the grumbling, all the hardness and died for it and rose for it. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Let's stand together and let's sing and ask him and pray this song that he would reign in our lives.